0: This is Wessler Media. The Wrath of the Buzzard, WMMS,
1: Cleveland.
2: And welcome to this very first bonus episode of The Wrath of the Buzzard. I am your host, Vince Tornero, and it's been a pleasure to have you along for the ride of the story of the great WMMS 100.7, The Buzzard. In here, in the studio, we've got a couple of uh, guys who you heard extensively on the series, John Gorman and Denny Sanders. Gentlemen, welcome.
3: Thank you. My pleasure.
2: Okay, so the series is done. We've had six episodes. And one of the things that I like to ask a lot of people when we do talk and do interviews, you know, you've had a chance to listen to the series, to 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 partake in it and to, to hear it after it's been produced. John, we'll start with you. The first question is, if you could go back in time and talk to your younger self when you were growing up in Boston, John, and, 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 and say something to yourself, knowing all that you know now, knowing all that you experienced at WMMS, what would you tell that young John Gorman who was fiddling with the radio in
4: his room back in Boston? Don't trust everybody. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's the music business. It's the radio business. Uh, I guess the philosophy is half the world wakes up every morning with the intent of screwing the other half out of everything they know and love, and if you understand that, that you have to be on guard all the time, uh, it helps you in this business, probably any business. I, you know, I, it's not necessarily just the music business and the radio business, but uh, you know, we, we were babes in the woods at the beginning. You know, you How first... old were
2: you when you started at MMS?
4: Early twenties. Uh, I just turned twenty-three. Oh my gosh.
2: 23. So yeah, that would have been, I mean, you, you, you would have been very green at that point. Yeah.
4: And it was the first time I lived outside of Boston too. So all of that, you know, it was just a, uh, a culture change. And, uh, yeah, suddenly, you yeah, I moved 600 miles away for this new job. And of course I knew Denny, so we worked together. So that, that was familiar, yeah. but everything else was new and untried. And, You know, what did we have, six months or four months left to save the station? And we did. Yeah, not
3: long. (laughs) That's right.
2: So, Denny, I'm curious, uh, you know, knowing all that you know now and all that you've experienced and reflecting on the series, if you could go back to the younger version of yourself, what would you tell that young Denny Sanders who uh, was just about to meet John Gorman and help change his tire outside of a radio station?
3: Well, I'll tell you what I would have told my younger self that first came to Cleveland that walked into WMMS, and that is, uh, don't worry. Don't worry. You're putting up with management indifference, but it'll actually work to your advantage because they won't be paying attention and you guys <laughs> will be building the station behind their back. And that's exactly what happened. So, uh, management indifference in the early days of MMS really worked to our advantage mm-hmm. because they didn't bother us. They didn't think we were worth bothering. <laughs> and so, before they knew it, we had built a winning radio station, uh, primarily based on their indifference.
2: Yeah. And you, you eventually, as the story goes, became an integral part of obviously, you know, the station's on-air identity. And, um, did you at any point in time, and, and I'm imagining you did get offers to, to go to a different radio station while you were at MMS? Like, how did that go? And, and if you did get offers, why did you stay at the radio station?
3: Well, I didn't pursue any of the offers. Uh, I didn't really get any, and I didn't really pursue any. I was very happy to be at MMS. We were a leading nationally recognized radio station, so, uh, you know, why do you want to go anywhere else? Cleveland was uh, economical to live in. I was married in those days, and I had a lot of friends at the radio station, so I wasn't inspired to go anywhere else. I will tell you that when Live Aid happened in Philadelphia— I ran into Charlie Kendall, who used to work with us, and he was at WNEW-FM in New York. And we chatted a little bit, and he says, hey, I can get you into WNEW. Why don't you give that a shot? And I think he was just being nice. I I never really followed it up. But, uh, you know, why would I want to live in New York City, where it costs a billion dollars to live in a Cardboard box, you know. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Just about. John, for you, I mean, you, you were eventually the operations manager. And so for you, like, w- w- you know, I'm sure you got some offers to go to, you know, higher up in the corporate chain at Mallright, perhaps. Well, what
4: happened in my case, as WMS started gaining a national reputation, and that happened very quickly, you would go to these radio conventions every year, and suddenly, I was getting invited to, do you want to be on this panel about this new format, this album rock format? Okay. So I started getting a national profile that way. Okay. I did get an offer in 1974, and it was very, very tempting. It was actually the first paid job I ever had in radio was a station called WHDH-FM. And uh, they flew me to Boston. And wined and dined me and this and that. And it was very, very tempting. It's so tempting, but there's something. It was a sixth sense. We're building something here in Cleveland. As we were developing this radio station, we felt we're onto to something. Why break this thing up? Yep,
2: excellent. All right. When we come back, we're going to be uh, hearing the full interview that Denny did with John Lennon, but also some special insights as well. That's next on this bonus episode of The Wrath of the Buzzard. W
0: M M S. More terrifying than The Exorcist, more ridiculous than The Omen, more truth than all the President's Men rebozo productions presents the devil made me do it the watergate story is only richard nixon could tell it i have an energy crisis and i need more power power find out the mysterious force that causes tapes to erase themselves see John Dean vomit his guts out to the Senate subcommittee. The Hughes Medical Institute. Witness Richard Nixon's brother blow a deal with the mob. Millions of dollars from secret slush funds went into the making of it. Hundreds of lives were ruined by it. The institutions of government must be used against the people. The devil made me do it. The biggest disaster of them all. Coming soon from Rebozo Productions. You must be a Resistor voter more shell shock
5: from
6: WMMS.
2: all right so welcome back to this bonus episode of the wrath of a buzzard and uh, Denny the John Lennon interview we have that in episode three the um, interview starts midway through a little bit. It starts in progress. What was discussed before the interview actually started?
3: Because it, it sounds like it starts middle of a question, middle of a thought. There wasn't too much before that. When the call finally came through, I picked it up. I said, hello. Lennon said, hello, is this Jenny Sanders? I said, yes. And he says, oh, all right. Are we ready to go? I said, yeah, let's go. And that was pretty much it. And we started with, you've always been a a straightforward performer. So there was only a few words before that. Okay. I have to tell you that uh, Verdell Warren, who was our sweetheart yeah. uh, receptionist, uh, we knew John Lennon was calling in and uh, we were waiting for the phone call. And I was in the little recording booth ready to take the call with a phone in the booth. Verdell got the call and uh, paged me on the House PA system, which, of course, I couldn't hear in the recording booth, right? <laughs> I have no idea why she thought I would pick pick up the phone from the House PA. So uh, what ended up was finally somebody came down to the
4: I think the, I heard it. And like, oh, did you? Yeah, Were you the one that did it? I, I think yeah. I, and, and I found you in the production room. Found I me mean, in the in the in the little recording booth. And, and Denny was, you know, all of this beforehand. I was trying to find a tape machine. In yeah. This, oh, the yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah, we it heard, was, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, believe me, it as 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 it was described. That's exactly how it happened.
3: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's it. Uh, and I was in that little recording closet with a makeshift phone patch, and uh, I guess it was John yeah. that came down and said. Uh, We've got John Lennon. I said, we'll put him through. And they did, and we started taping.
2: So it is true that Verdell Warren, so John Lennon called and said, I'm calling for Denny Sanders, Yeah, and then and then Verdell put him on hold.
3: Yeah. Put him on hold and <laughs> did the House PA, as if I could hear that in the little recording booth.
2: <laughs> that's that's fabulous. I'm curious, Denny, uh, are there any questions that you had that you scratched that you didn't ask John Lennon
3: that maybe you wish you did ask? Nothing that I scratched at the time, but in retrospect, there are two things I wish I would have done. Number one, I wish I would have asked him, how come he doesn't play the harmonica that much anymore? (laughs) I used to love to hear I Should Have Known Better and uh, I'm a Loser and all those songs he did with the Beatles where he broke out the harmonica. And I love that. Thank you, girl. Thank you, girl. You got it. And uh, in his solo days, he rarely played the harmonica. I don't think he played it at all. Uh, And uh, I, I... should have asked him that. And the other thing, I might have embarrassed him, but I I should have really wrapped up the interview by saying, speaking for millions of people around the world, I want to thank you for all the wonderful music. Yeah, And uh, I thought uh, it might be a little maudlin to say that or uh, it might embarrass him. So I didn't, but I regret that. I, I wish I would have wrapped up the interview that way. Well, here's the interview that Denny did with John Lennon.
6: You've always been a pretty straightforward performer, both in the Beatle days and in your recent stage appearances over the years. Yeah. Now, there seems to be a trend these days towards elaborate costumes and stage settings yeah. for uh, the concert performer to either emphasize the plot of each particular tune yeah. or to amplify the image of the band. Do you yeah. enjoy this new stage elaboratism?
1: Uh, I haven't. Uh, the only way I've seen it is on TV. I meant to go and see David Bowie, but I always seem to miss it, you know. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, it, it looks pretty good on on the screen, and I've heard reports that it's pretty good on stage too. Mm-hmm. So I, uh, you know, I'm all for it. You know, whatever's going down, I, I'm it's cool with me. he yeah. already has changed, right? On the in the middle of this tour or something, he he suddenly decided just he wants to get back to being a singer and he's dropped the big show you know I'm sure you will have something but not the same
6: you know yeah yeah do you think in the future your stage act will get more elaborate I mean with sets and with all kinds of stuff like that
1: no unless you know I was going on with somebody special I don't know I uh, if I ever did go on the road, I, you know, and unless there was some quick gimmick or you know something like dropping cows from the ceiling, it's too real, you know. If it was a bit too real, I'd go for it. But to me, it's still music, you know. And it gets down to it—you take the record home and you play it, you know. Yeah. I mean, if I got into it, I don't know. I'm sure there'd be something to do. The, all those things are so, so elaborate, you know. It, it, it takes away from the music. It would it would bother my head if I had to think of it, you know. Why am I don't mind suggesting things, but somebody else would have to get it together. I'd be too concentrating on keeping the beat, you know.
6: elaborate stage effects take away from the musical presentation? No, no. I just think that
1: I don't have that kind of head that could deal with, you know, flying saucers coming past while I was singing the song, you know. If somebody else could do it while I was performing, that's cool. <laughs> I think by the time I get on the road, they won't be doing it anymore
6: anyway. <laughs> what about the elaboratism that's now evident in, in the production of records nowadays? Some people say that the contemporary music today is being overproduced because some records sound so studio and everybody's out for so much perfection in the recording studio. The raw off-the-cuffness that made rock and roll such an everyday person's music is being liquidated from over because of over-elaborate production. Do, do you think
3: that I this think is... A, there is a little
1: of that in the air. But I think it's just because of sort of one generation of musicians has sort of got control of the uh, production end as well, and they're tending to sort of get into it more than necessary, probably. But uh, I, I still make my records the same way, you know. I, I was I just finished this album I've done, and it took me six weeks, and anything longer than eight weeks in the studio, and I'm bored stiff, you know. I really, and I like to get the musicians sort of when they're cooking i'll take a mistake you know if the track's cooking and you know, i'd sooner go for the feel of it than make it into a, i call that painting by numbers you know yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's cool if people want to do it and sometimes it comes off you know mm-hmm. but don't... they tend to sit on a formula and repeat it over and
6: over right don't you think some of those so-called mistakes make the music uh, oh, yeah. so great you know i love
1: it i mean some of the best drum fills and things like that have come from mistakes where the drummer's lost you know and he just sort of goes, follow up. And we, everybody follows him into the next one, you know?
6: Right, right. You said something about Spectre. That man can do more with 55 PS tape echo than with uh, anything else.
1: Yeah, I, 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 did. I might have said it because I've said quite a lot about him. But, yeah, you know, if you want to talk production, I still think he's the top, you know? Yeah. And uh, he can do more with a repeat echo than most people can do with 40 tracks. Right
6: on the new album you've got Julian playing drums behind you on Yaya oh yeah Yeah. is, is he into drums or is he just like to noodle around with instruments in general uh,
1: he fiddles around with different instruments I think he's into the guitar because of his old man probably yeah. and he does play a little sort of piano you know in a child way you know I mean nobody's right. teaching him or nothing I, I wouldn't you know force him I'd let him play what he likes but I brought him over here because I can't leave the country because of immigration Right. So he comes to visit me, and I was in the middle of this album, and I thought, oh, God, he's going to be bored. And I'm, you know, last time he was here, I took him to Disneyland and stuff like that in L.A., but this time it was New York, and so I thought going to be bored stiff, and he loved the studio. He loved the knobs and the controls, and he ran around all the instruments all the time. <laughs> so we just sort of slyly put the tape recorder on and uh, while he was drumming, and I just started singing Ya and uh, we just taped it he doesn't know he's on it yet because we've only just got the album in you know uh-huh. and i'm going to ship it to him today and he i, I haven't told him i'm just going to let him find out for himself he'll love it
6: he might go after his own manager now you never know
1: too early.
6: how old is julian now he's 11. wow he's really grown up isn't i know
1: he? it's amazing you know at 11 he's like 14 you know this generation is so different yeah. I mean, he's hipper than I was at 11. It's amazing. But in one way, it's cool because you, you don't. I don't think we're going to have that communication gap bit, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's the glitter and all that, but that's a sort of facade, you know? It's just like we had, you know, Tony Curtis haircut, you know? Right. It's really just a sort of image to project yourself, you know, that, that we are here, folks, you know? Yeah. And we don't look like you because, you know? But I think there might be less of that "quotes unquotes generation gap" because if they're hipper and we're slightly hipper than our parents, we, we might be able to, you know, get something going instead of that. You know, I mean, I'm sure we all fall into it. Oh, well, in my day, we didn't have this, we didn't have that, you know
6: right well there's a, it's not the grand canyon that it once was
1: between yeah you. i hope uh, not. I, I i hope it's going to be different this
6: time around you know yeah yeah you know musically there seems to be a little slump lately uh, yeah. there are all kinds of trends and all kinds of fads that are coming up yeah. but no real sweeping change like there was in the middle 60s and the middle 50s and so on and most people today that call me up they want to hear the old standby tunes usually from the late 60s you know do you think that this longing for the good old days attitude is is healthy
1: well, I wouldn't call it unhealthy because I think we all go through it, you know? Yeah. I think probably, again, each generation goes through it. And already, like, my music was the 50s. Right. Probably your music was the 60s, yeah. even though I was part of the 60s. The, the stuff that made the big impression on me was when I was 16. Yeah. And the, their music now will probably be the glitter stuff. And I think the visual has got, has become... All uh, well, even in so-called my days, you know, Presley's visuals were as important as his music at the time, right. you know, so I really don't know, and uh, as for the next phenomena, you know, I mean, they all say it's due now, 74, so I'm sure something will happen yeah everybody won't know it's happening now it'll be going on in idaho or something or jamaica you know yeah
6: do you think that we're all sitting there watching waiting for the pot to boil and we're looking at it and you know
1: yeah maybe we can't see the wood for the trees you know yeah i don't know maybe it is the wood and the trees because the the major event has been the sort of the stage show right the presentation Mm -hmm. and when you think of it sort of objectively it was a natural event wasn't it you know i mean every the music had been the whole trip and then for this generation they say well we you know the music isn't new for us it's just our music that goes there that's what we always knew right. they didn't they don't remember just having the old time music you know of course yeah. Yeah. so the visuals was a natural thing and maybe uh people the, art, the artists in the business you know the new ones were putting their minds to the stage rather than the music you know because it was natural to them you know they were just sort
6: of emphasizing what, you know, the other side of it. Yeah. Somebody, I was talking with somebody the other night and we were asking about, uh, of course, it's all speculation. Yeah. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, never yeah. mind in 10 years. Yeah. But somebody was mentioning to me that... The theater and the dance will become a more dominant art form than than music is with us today uh, in the 80s because of the fact that everybody's going to grow up with music in this particular generation, this particular kind of music, and is always, it's always available to them, and radio is playing it, and the records are selling now more than ever, yeah. and there are serious critical publications about the music, which there never was back when yeah. when we were kids. Right. If, if
1: that's true, and I, you know, I wouldn't know myself because I'm not a crystal gazer, but yeah. if quite feasible but thing is that dance and theater are integral part of music i mean the separation came later i think in you know if we go back to uh, not cavemen but way back Mm -hmm. you find that music and dance and theater were all one right all one thing and it's they got a little so specialized you know yeah and if anything at all goes that way I, i i can't music has to be you know and uh, there's no way it's going to be less important, you know. It's music's part of life and there's nothing, you cannot survive without music, I don't think, you know. Mm. Although they say the Eskimos do, but I don't really believe it. I think they'll have something going up there. <laughs> you know? For sure, there are more Eskimos, right? <laughs> yeah, right,
6: right. <laughs> What's the attraction to America that you have?
1: Well, it, it's, it's, it's the center of the world, you know, and it's all happening here. And, the music's here and everything else is here you know once you've had a taste of it giving it up would be a drag you know yeah. it's just good to be here and i like, i like the people it, it isn't a pr you know i just like americans you know i was brought up on americana i mean we were all brought up on, in england on doris day and heinz beans and and you know then rock roll and uh, coca-cola we don't know any better we all thought you know, uh, Heinz Ketchup was English, you know. We didn't find out till we got over here what where it all came from, you
6: know. Right, they're all American companies that are based in England with English addresses. Yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, we, we took it for granted, you
6: know. Are you thinking about going on the road again?
1: Uh, only when people ask me. Has anybody no. asked you? Well, you just
6: asked me. No, no, no. I'm saying, has anybody with uh, the financial right.
1: backing to help to uh, get it together? Has anybody oh, approached uh, you? I'm usually approached for one or two concerts rather than the whole tour. You know, mm-hmm. it's usually that that kind of thing. And I do sometimes get an urge to perform, but the the idea of a forty you know city tour doesn't sort of fill me. The fact of getting a band together. I mean, it's easier when you've got a band, you know. Right, do so you have people yeah, uh, yeah, in mind, you know? i probably use the band, basically, that I used on, on my new album, Walls and Bridges, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Jenny. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'd probably use that band, basically. But uh, I haven't really thought about it, you know. I, I, can't, I was almost surprised that George took up this idea of going on the tour, you know. But uh, it's such a. It's, it's, it's easier when you've got a band, when you have a band. Without a band, it's a real hassle. You
6: know? Right, but right. do you miss the aspect of, in the old days, of course, there were just crowds and crowds and crowds of people everywhere. Do, do you miss that? Do you miss stepping on a stage and hearing a...
1: Oh, no, I don't have any of that, you know, lying, listening to the playback of the crowd shouting. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm music is the thing that got me into all this. Theme. Mm -hmm. and music is what still interests me. So I don't, you know, I mean, I miss the fun we had, but also there was a lot of hard work. And uh, it's just the music that I'm interested in. So it's really, now I I get off on going to the movies, going to a restaurant, and simple stuff that I had to give up for a few years. So I still haven't got over, you know, I like being famous, otherwise I probably would never have done it. You know, and it, it definitely helps get me... Whatever I'm trying to get across on music or otherwise, across. Yeah. But I really am digging on, you know, going out to eat and going the movies and just being a bit normal, you know. Right, right. And that's what's turning me on. And when I get involved in any of those things that look vaguely like a crowd scene, I really get a bit claustrophobic, you know. It yeah. all sort of comes back to me like deja vu. Mm. You know, when I, when I get in, involved in a mob scene, and it, it sort of scares me still,
6: you know? Yeah. Finally, if somebody made a reasonable offer in regards to a charity concert here on a local basis, is it out of the question that uh, you could be approached?
1: I'm always approachable, and obviously the most the most things I'm approached for are those kind of things. Mm-hmm. But it's the same thing involved with those things, whether it's for money or charity it's it's not a case of just getting up and doing a gig you know like if somebody asks stevie wonder you know he can just say okay lads we're going to do a so-and-so right they're on the road and the band's together and it's tight and for me to do something like that is is a lot is very different you know not only do i have to pull the whole show together but the i'm watched more than anybody else as to how he stood how he performed and that and it's rather it's more of a job for me to to give a yes on anything like that. Yeah. Although I always uh, look at all these things that come in, you know, and think twice before I say no. But for the last year or two, I've been saying no because uh, I did something at Madison Square Gardens, which is fine. They helped a lot of people. But it was really hell for me, you know. I mean, I ended up putting the whole thing together because n- nobody ever seems to know what they're doing, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I really got sort of, you know, a bit put off. After that, right. although for the since I've been in America, that's all I've done. Right. It is sort of what what do you call them? I can't not shout. Sure. is another word? Benefits. benefits. Yeah. I mean, at one period, I thought I never would want to work again for money, and I thought benefits was the only thing I'd do, and I did half. I have done half a dozen, big and small, right. but mainly small. You know, what I mean, meaning there wasn't a great national thing about it. And it, there's always some catch-22 in it, you know? Yeah, I can Because be- usually, because if it's for benefit, nobody really puts, puts it together, you know? Yeah. And everybody's full of talk, you know? You just go on, John, and it'll be all right. But by the way, can you get George Elton, Dylan and Elton, you know? <laughs> and yeah, I, end you up off- you yeah, I end up organizing the whole show and I'm supposed to ring everybody in the world. It just gets too much for me. Yeah. And yeah. so, although my heart is in it, I, I just, I just thought, I've had enough of this, you know? Yeah. I, really, I really got tired of it. You know? right. And then getting bad mouthed for doing it. You know, I mean, after it, i get sort of attacked, you know, for not being as good as the Beatles or something I that. I stopped this for a lot, you know. <laughs> I make records.
6: I guess it's true when you, when you find yourself a, a John Lennon that every word that you speak is analyzed by yeah, it's
1: amplified and yeah. people think that just because i'm going to be somewhere that the whole show will magically put itself together and everything's all right you know right it doesn't work like that i have to get out there and sell my records i have to get out there and sell myself mm-hmm. it's not a, a magic fact that if i appear somewhere the whole world's going to be all right you know yeah, yeah. and uh, I, it just got but i i seem to be on the only list of people who you know, oh
6: Len will do it, Len will do it. So I just thought, no, I'm gonna take a rest from
1: this. Somebody else can do this for a bit. Right carry this ball again. Right. I cannot possibly
6: let you go without asking this question. What There's a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> well let me throw it in quick. Um what do you what did you feel about the beatles convention in new york and in boston
1: i I thought it was great you know Mm -hmm. and i didn't go to the one in new york because it was really wild you know there's probably about eight thousand people over two days but uh, i was interested in it and i made sure everybody sent a um a little thing you know a guitar or a drum or something i sent a guitar and I sent somebody along to buy me some memorabilia, you know. <laughs> so I've got me Beetle badges and all that stuff. And I thought it was great, you know. Right. And if they wanna do it, it's cool. I did feel a little like we'd already died. But apart from that it was nice, you know. Yeah. And and, and it's nice to know people still follow. And the surprising thing was half of them were fourteen. So they must have got it from their sisters and brothers, you know. Right. Because they're really, the age, average
6: age there must have been 16 as far as, from what people told me. Right, that's very true. Which man. is incredible. That's very true. All right, uh, uh, our program director, John Gorman, just hit me with this one. And this is definitely the last question. I I'll know see. you have to okay, go. Okay, I'm sorry, John. Okay. Uh, the Worth of the Butcher cover. Oh The yeah. Yesterday and Today album?
1: Yeah. yeah, I've got one, I've got one. Uh, you've got one? <laughs>
6: yeah. <laughs> is, that, is that your retirement or what? <laughs> no,
1: I don't know how it got into that price range. They're asking $200 for it, right? That's
6: right, that's right.
1: But uh, I got one before it started being a craze. I got it from Capital once a couple of years back. Yeah. And I, I, I wanted to use it on the next repackage, but we'll see about that.
6: That would be tremendous if it could be done, of well, course. I'm sure you have enough. use
1: it, you know, yeah. but people still sort of flinch when they see it, but after Alice Cooper and all Um, that you know I mean what's the matter with it
6: was the biggest problem with that wasn't it because American disc jockeys didn't like the way that the uh, cover looked was that it that's what I read well what happened was it went out and
1: then Capitol got a lot of slack feedback on it and they just withdrew it I don't know who didn't like it you know it was a sort of in a way an anti-war thing you know it was just sort of and also to, you know shut the other side of the boys (laughs) (laughs) and anyway now it's a, a sort of rare thing so that's the way things
6: go yeah john thank you very much for talking
1: it's a pleasure danny have a nice
6: day and when you go back on the road i
1: hope you play cleveland oh i will have a nice cleveland okay
0: Okay. Bye, bye. hi i'm emma
7: and i'm joe and And we're we're the the professional Professional book Book nerds Nerds.
5: two mondays a month we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books what drives them and their go-to order at the cafe
2: All right. So, Denny, that's the interview. Uh, what's your favorite moment from that conversation? Because there's not many people that have got to record a conversation with arguably the most famous Beale.
3: Well, there's a couple of moments that stand out. Um, when we started talking about benefits, that he is always approached to play some kind of charity benefit, he kind of bitched a little bit saying, you know, everybody expects me to put it all together as if it's all going to magically come together because I'm involved. So I have to call everybody. I have to set up the rehearsal. I have to do everything, and uh, it wasn't that he was against playing benefits, but he just had bad experiences because people expected him to pull everything together and do all the heavy lifting. And I can't blame him. I don't think that's fair.
2: Yeah, I mean, I mean, I can understand. You're a beetle. You get the level of success. People are going to start pulling on you and trying to be your best friend. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. All right, coming back on the other side of this break, we're going to be doing a breakdown of a get-down, John Gorman's favorite Murray Saul get-down. We're going to go behind the scenes and the meaning of it all next here on this bonus episode
6: of The Wrath of the Buzzard. Rock and roll from the north coast of America, WMMS, Cleveland,
5: Hi, I'm Jeff Kinsby. And I'm Ed Flash Ferentz. And we're, we're going, going to, to Lebanon. Lebanon. And you can come with us. We'll jet to the carrier Eisenhower, then be chauffeur-driven by marine landing craft to Green Beach, West Beirut. We'll be staying just outside the Beirut airport at the recently vacated marine positions just built. The balmy breezes are accented by 50-millimeter mortar fire, a pyrotechnic display at no charge that has to be seen to be believed. We'll also visit the historic Souk El Garb and diner with various factions of Lebanon's vast array of political and religious groups. And for the more adventurous, we'll have special tours of the Green Line and plenty of duty-free shopping for Soviet military hardware. Call now, though. Call Arafat Travel, 555-1700. That's right. You ain't seen nothing till you've seen Beirut.
6: There is nothing wrong with your radio. You are not hallucinating. You are listening to W.M.M.S. Cleveland.
2: All right. Welcome back to this bonus episode of The Wrath of a Buzzard. We're here with John Gorman and Denny Sanders, two of the stars of the radio station who spent a lot of time with us creating the podcast series. Uh, so, episode three, uh, John, we talk a lot about uh, Murray Saul and... Uh, in an interview that we did with uh, Shelly Style, uh, one of my probably one of my favorite lines in the podcast, she goes, They were vulgar, they were insane. The get downs that Murray <laughs> Saul did. So, this is a man who is oftentimes vulgar and insane on the air. We're going to play a get down and break it down here in a little bit. Uh, but first, I wanted to ask you, was there ever a time when Murray did a get down and you said, Hey, hey, Murray, you went a little too far?
4: No. Well, actually, not even when he's no. There was one time that he was actually going to say someone's name, and you wouldn't want to have that name associated with that particular line. Okay, probably that's the best polite way I can do it. But no, there really wasn't a time, and I I know it's like you gave him free reign. Well, not exactly either. The, The way the FCC worked back then was. Indecency was something that the FCC did not take lightly. Yeah. They would fine stations, you could lose the license, you could do that, and, you know, I was fortunate that, I mean, I was told, you know, my job description is get ratings and don't lose the license. It's pretty simple you know, enough. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think- you know, And was, don't was, spend any money. Don't spend any <laughs> money. So, yeah, that's true. <laughs> If you could do all those things, you have a job for life. But
2: did he but but was there ever was there ever a time when you, you, you cut some lines or something? Or you were like, "Oh, eh, let's not do this. And you were eating lunch, you're like, we should do this. Then at the end of the lunch, you're like when you're writing the get down, you No, like, not
4: not really. Okay. Not, in those days, to have a broadcast license, you had to do monthly ascertainments. You had to make sure that you were that your public affairs programming, your public service announcements, and all that—that that you you you're identifying the needs of your community. Yeah, yeah. Part of the needs of the community is knowing what they consider obscene, and it depends on the market. And in our case, the person that was listening to MMS that found MMS, and you know, by 1975, you know, and all these the get downs really started. Taking hold, uh, we knew what our audience would bear. We could get away with a lot because they weren't going to com- they weren't going to call the f c c and say, "Hey, guess what? They just played a song called "Gang Bang" by the Alex harvey band, we didn 't have that kind of audience. They expected those things
3: I think if we were on w g a r
4: yeah and okay. played
3: some of those songs and had Murray Saul on. <laughs> I think we would have probably had the license pulled
4: in 20 minutes. Yeah. It's hilarious. Yeah. I mean John Lanning got in more, got in more trouble with GAR than we did with Murray. That's right.
2: <laughs> All right. Well, let's hear Murray. This, uh, this get down is from uh, January 16th of uh, 1976. We spoke with John and asked him what his favorite get down was. And, uh, well, here it is.
8: Oh, we did it again. We're out of there, dungeon. Can you imagine? It felt natural to be back in the harness again this week. It was heavy pulling that wagon, but we're strong, and we're almost used to it. Slave Driver kept flicking that whip a little bit, just a snap on the backside, you know. But we got our bag of oats, and we're out of there, because... It's Friday, 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 oh, you know, he just got back from the slave drivers convention this week. This year they held it at the Vampire Hilton. The registration fee for their convention was ten gallons of our blood. And he had such fun telling us of the good time they had... ...sitting around that pool of our blood. Oh, Oh, they just sat there in the evening howling at the moon. And he looked at a display of some new equipment at the convention torture racks with hydromatic stretch and new collars with spikes on the inside and a little shorter leash. A new model of cattle prod that you can do two at once with. And they held a contest for the meanest slave driver of them all. And of course, our beloved slave driver won. He explained that in our company, you must give two weeks notice before you can get sick and a note from your department head before you're allowed to die. Oh, they held a dance at the convention, and all the slave drivers just glided on the floor doing the stomp, the whip, musical chairs, and a new one called the claw. They hired the best marching band in the country, you know. They make us zombies, sit there. Stand there. They even tell us when to eat. They get us coming. They get us going. But now we're out of there. They can't do a thing because it's Friday! 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 You know, this week, I think the bug up his ass had a bug up his ass. Now let's get good and scrambled with some disco status. Yaza, bowser, bo-za, boza, oh yaza! I'm talking to you now. Let's get down and dirty. It is happening. Oh, I want to hear about it. Oh yeah! Oh, it feels so good to be out of there. Let's get into the slush capital of the world and party our asses off. I'll put Cleveland slush and salt eating away everything from our shoes to the roofs of our cars against any salt in the world. Let's glory in our ooky, crappy, slushy slush and not stop going for one minute. And let's make sure we're all stocked up for Sunday afternoons. It will be such the bowl on Sunday. Oh, let's even... Oh, yeah, Ah. Mmm. We'll be watching the Steelers and the Cowboys sackin' that quarterback. It'll be such the pisser game. And it's the last chance to see some good football. I'll miss those cheerleading honeys on the tube. The cheerleaders carrying those footballs under their sweater and bouncing and dancing. And isn't that the nicest? We're going to go crazy this weekend. We may even bring out the barbecue. There is a concept to the winter cue, you know. Start twisting those tunas and just pass them around, form uh, the longest. Chain there ever was in the history of the world. We're just going to look and smile and come close and be together and just have the best time because we are the ones, all of us, every single one of us, down to our toes. You get your shoes and we'll take them off. Feel all that happening because it's happening. Oh, there does seem to be a little more of the substance being in the substance of the ozone and the E zone and the Y zone. And we are. Happening out there! Oh, turn your honey into some popcorn this weekend. Feels so good, so nice and warm with butter just rolling down the sides and there's always something getting stuck in between your teeth up on the top, you know, liven things up. Add a little molasses turn your honey into a popcorn ball for that matter oh don't you just love the salty and sweet coming together and in there we'll be munching on that popcorn slurping our way through the molasses all weekend long oh nothing like a little popcorn on the rack you know Oh, are they all lined up is the back door open, and all the doors, little oil in there, you know, make it just slide and glide and have just the best time. Oh, the fosh is in the lock. Snoopy ate a roast beef bone all week long, one bone, it kept him just moving. Spider, it's so good that you're back here. Stick the tank. We need the tank, and we gotta, 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 gotta win. Gotta, 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 gotta get down, damn it!
3: There's a lot of John Gorman in those getdowns. Let me tell you that, right? It couldn't be
4: without Murray. What do
2: you mean by that, Denny?
3: Well, John and Murray got together and wrote the script. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, John really—you can—you can can hear a lot of John in 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 that script. Uh, Well, question for John: I never knew this. You tell me:
4: Did Murray ad lib off the script much? A little bit, but you can kind of tell. Uh huh. He'd he'd add little things, and you can kind of tell because they just when he started talking in tongues. Yeah, he (laughs) started talking in tongues. That's blah blah blah. (laughs) It's it's, it's hilarious. Yeah, it's almost like Maurice. Takes a guitar, and he does the solo, and there's a few extra chords uh, yeah. in it. He's got a few extra <laughs> notes in there. So the slave
2: driver obviously is referring to the station owner at the time, you know, Milt, Milt Maltz. So walk me into this, yeah, this get down.
4: M- Milton Maltz was the unofficial character of the slave driver, but it could have been anybody's boss. Okay. And but for your just, purposes, happened, but, it was, yeah. But and and but Milt was the perfect slave driver. He looked like the guy, he acted like the guy, he was the guy, he sounded like the guy. He too. did, <laughs> <if that girl. laughs> yeah. like, he like, you talk like that. He always snarled, yeah. <laughs> well,
3: John, yeah. what do you think we're gonna do yeah. now?
4: <laughs> the the way that get down came about was uh, you know, Mulberry had other stations, another market, okay. and Milt had a sales, all the sales managers and general managers. They had their meeting in Cleveland. So Milt had his, his uh, convention of, of these sales managers and general managers. And you, you were just seeing all of these, these managers, they were all on their best behavior and all trying to, you know, if, if Milt would say something, they would all in unison, you know, talk, you know, just, just applaud him and all that. And so Murray and I, we happened to go to the uh, pewter. Uh, pewter mug? Pewter mug. Yeah. And it turned out that Milt had a whole part of the pewter mug with his managers. They had a table set up and he's talking to managers and he's just, and they're hanging on to every word and he's just snarling away and all that. And out of that, Murray and I just started walking, why don't we come out with the slave driver convention? And it just came out of watching them having lunch and watching them and, and watching the way Milt was. And then back at the station, you know. They they were walking around the halls. And that's when, you know, Murray came up with you know, did you notice they don't walk, they glide. And from there came, oh, lucky, let's let's write that in there. You know, that's that's how the get downs came about. Murray came up with a line, I'd come up with a line, maybe something in the newspaper. But that convent that 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 manager's meeting that he had was just we had so much material, out of it. You know, just imagine if that was somewhere else. And said, yeah, well, the you know, the, can you, they'd be sitting around a pool of blood, you know, baying at the moon, and you know, we all those lines came in, and that one became so easy to it almost wrote itself, that it then sparked the rest of the get down, you know, about the the Super Bowl that weekend and everything else, and it, you know, that's pretty much how those get-downs would be written. You'd, 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 you'd find the spark, you'd build on that, and then from there, I, I used to compare it to a, believe it or not, I would say this is like a Catholic mass where <laughs> everything has its, you know, everything has its, That's right. its place, its
2: cadence, its rhythm. Yeah.
4: So it's like, you know, we'll do the slave driver. That follows with the yayza, yowza, bowser. The disco that, Spanish yeah, or whatever. And then, it, yeah, and from there it, it from there it goes into, you know, anything else that may be newsworthy. Then it, from there it goes into National Bee Week, Eat Your Honey for the Weekend, and whatever comes after. And then there was also a. Marijuana report every week, and we started finding out that everybody, even if they weren't regular WMMS listeners, would tune in just to hear that get down. That it 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 became like a ritual in Cleveland.
3: Yeah. What did you say, Denny? And you look like you want to say something. Well, yes, it was like a mass, and uh, the the wrap up, gotta 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 get down, was the communion.
4: Yeah.
3: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I don't... That, was, that was the. Bring the audience in at the yeah. finale, you know.
2: Let's talk, uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, before we get into this break, uh, Taurus Gold, the Taurus Gold spot. <laughs> Can you uh, <laughs> explain, explain what folks are about to hear here real briefly before we get into it?
4: The Taurus Gold was, imagine if the get-down was sponsored. And it was like, what, what would be the sponsor? Well, it would obviously be, be marijuana. If marijuana was illegal, what commercial would we create for it? I mean, that's, that's really how the Taurus Gold came to be. And I, we actually did two of them. I think the one you're playing is going to be the, uh, the one at the Huffler Co. It was, it was a takeoff on the Hessler Street Fair. Hessler Street was sort of like, what would you say, like a hippie-ish kind of... Yeah, a little hippie commune neighborhood. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: All right, well, here it is. Taurus Gold will be back after the break here on this bonus episode of The Wrath of the Buzzard.
0: The Rock and Roll Crusaders
8: WMMS Cleveland this is Maurice Hall at the 10th Annual Huffler Cove Artsy Craftsy Foodsy Fair for Taurus Gold. And with me is El Guido de Boom Boom. Tell me, Boom, how's it going this year? Very good, very good, Murr. The plaster casting and the body painting
6: booths are doing really great business this year. Say, Murr, you wouldn't happen to have some of that Taurus gold on you, would you? Uh, sure I do, Boom.
8: Just like one of these up right now. Mm-hmm. <sighs>
6: Thanks. Ah, Taurus gold.
8: That's right. El Greed is enjoying the fine substance that is the substance, and of course the substance is the Taurus gold. Whenever you want nothing but the biggest, fattest, stickiest gold bought in town, it's Taurus gold. One puff is tough. Two tokes, you. Choke now, boom. Let me have a hit of that. Here you go, Mer. <laughs> Say, just let me know when we hit Alpha Centauri, will you? <sighs> That's Torres' gold. Mm. Hey, Mur. if one puff is tough and two tokes you choke,
6: what happens when you take three hits of? Taurus Gold.
8: Great question, boom. But you just go right ahead. Put that Taurus Gold tuna right to your lips. Take three big tokes of that sweet stuff.
6: Here's one.
8: Mm Hmm. Two. Ladies and gentlemen, El Guido de Boom Boom is about to take his third toke of Taurus gold right here at the 10th annual Huffler Cove Artsy Craftsy Foodsy Fair. Are you ready, Boom?
6: Here goes. Now what? Look out for the
8: What happened? Taurus Gold. Taurus. It'll obliterate That's, That's Taurus, Taurus Gold. Gold.
6: Canoe? Yes, you can. Canoe Yellow Wine. The now wine sensation from Sandusky. Deliciously different, smooth, and yellow with a touch of DDT. Indigestible. When you get together, get it together with Canoe. Imported by Grime Shippers Import Company, Sandusky, Ohio, from Bosco. Famous for quality glue since last week. C-A-N-U-U. Super fine Canoe Yellow Wine. I wouldn't if I were you.
0: Wizard, wizard, wizard power. Cleveland.
2: All right, so we are back and in this segment. What we're going to do is we're going to give you some stories that didn't make it into the podcast. So in episode one, there was uh, David Spiro, and uh, David's introduction to music, it really came through uh, his father's music-based TV show called Upbeat. And of course, like in the 1960s, when your dad has a TV show, you're bound to have some pretty incredible experiences. So, we loved our conversation with David, uh, but we wanted to share with you some of the incredible experiences he had that weren't necessarily WMMS related, but certainly contributed to the history and the foundation from which WMMS grew. So, here's David Spiro, some great stories here.
7: From 1964 to 1971, my dad had a a national TV show called Upbeat.
2: What was the format of your dad's show? You know, was it just bands come out of play, you know, just kind of. Well, there was a
7: host, and, and what he wanted to do was take Top 40 radio and put it on TV. And that's what he did. So instead of listening to the radio for an hour, here's all the songs you'd be hearing on the radio. But, you know, there'd be very brief interviews with the host, you know, very, very brief. It would just be, what are you doing? You know, what's your next record? Blah, blah, blah. Heard you just played, you know, with the Beatles. What was that like? You know, just this, you know, really trite interview questions that got you from song to song to song. We would tape on Saturday. Uh, Rehearsals were Saturday morning. We'd tape Saturday afternoon. So Friday night, whoever had come in for the show, we would always have like a big, you know kind of hang out at our, at our house so it was it was kind of normal to have Marvin Gaye and Mitch Ryder and the Love and Spoonful you know they would all be hanging around the house so and I was 13 years old when the show started so to me this became just kind of this was our life I didn't know that uh everybody didn't have this happening you know <laughs>
2: As a 13 year old, like, can you describe like kind of the Cleveland music scene? Describe the music scene in 64.
7: Well, I mean, it was just interesting because the TV show was just starting and there were so many locations in Cleveland where you could go to see live music uh, and very dedicated spaces like Leo's Casino. Every artist of color would play Leo's Casino Thursday, Friday, Saturday and do upbeat Saturday afternoon. So we had The Temptations, The Four Tops, Diana Ross, The Supremes, uh, Stevie Wonder, who did the show probably more than anybody. But then there was also a club called La Cove, and that's where Simon and Garfunkel would play, or that was where Blood, Sweat and Tears did their first ever show. The only TV appearance of uh, Lou Reed and Velvet Underground was on Upbeat because they would play La Cove on a regular basis. Not to mention music hall, public hall, you know, the giant venues where you'd have a show that would have the Rolling Stones, BB King, the McCoys, Ike and Tina Turner. All of them would just head over to the TV show before or after their performances. I was hanging with all these people. I, I was the cue card guy. And when the show started, the hosts were the radio DJs from Cleveland. It was guys from Wixie 1260 and from WHK. And that's where I first kind of got to know Billy as well was during that period of time when it became a national show and and changed the name from the big five to upbeat. That's when Don Webster took over the hosting, but the other DJs would be there every Saturday getting interviews from, because there'd be nine or 10 acts right there, you know, from all genres. So if the yardbirds were doing upbeat i'd take jimmy page and bring him over to my radio show whoever it would be tommy james or i remember bringing um otis redding over there at one point so i had all these people that were doing both things the tv show i could use them on my radio show and it really kind of helped to establish me
2: it just seems like the industry had a much tighter connection with artists back in the day
7: i yeah. think so because Radio was their outlet. You know there wasn't a until you were the Beatles or the Top Motown acts or whatever, and getting on the Ed sullivan Show, you were stuck doing dance parties, you know, in a million different cities, and the difference between upbeat and the dance party shows were, like American band said, would just have one artist on a week that might do two or three songs, and then all the rest would be dance numbers. Upbeat would have ten different artists. They might have Otis Redding and the Bar and Mitch Ryder doing a song together, you know, to make it a little bit different. But, um, you know, that that was kind of the difference. It was a it was a real entertainment show as opposed to a dance party and radio in Cleveland, you know, from the going back to Alan Freed and Bill Randall and all the, you know, the original guys that started here that played, you know, at, at one point it was called race music. But but radio, like rock and roll, became totally colorblind. And that was uh, one of the big problems we had with Upbeat in the early days. That my dad had a lot of markets that were saying, oh, well, we're not gonna, we can't play that number in the show because you've got a, a black girl dancing with a white singer. I mean, that's how bad it was back in those days. You know, we'd have some of the Motown acts over at our house and we had friends. That lived on our street that weren't allowed to come into our house this is in you know this is in the 1960s america this is what it was yeah. you know friends say do they have like do you have different forks and knives that they use or do you use that you know because they don't know because they grew up in an with an ignorant set of parents who this is what they believe i mean unfortunately i think we're back in that cycle again now where people are growing up with their parents ignorance And rock and roll really got on top of that from the beginning. And especially in years like Sly and the Family Stone with an interracial band. I mean, that was unheard of. That was just unheard of. And they had lots of problems touring in the early 70s where, you know, the white drummer and the white horn player, you know, they can stay at the Ritz-Carlton. But the rest of the band had to go stay in one one of the Green Book hotels. I mean, that was very, very real.
2: So rock and roll, you know, obviously the, uh, the ultimate integrator.
7: There was, it was colorblind. That's how it was. It was colorblind and it was the best thing that ever happened to the world.
2: Great stuff from David Spiro. And coming up on the next episode of these bonus episodes of the wrath of a buzzard, we have another unexpected famous beetle interview and a couple of endearing and one terrifying story from WMMS legend Billy Bass. It's going to be on the next episode, the next bonus episode of The Wrath of the Buzzard. The
0: Wrath of the Buzzard, W-M-M-S, Cleveland. Got my mind on
6: summertime, cruising with the
1: buzzard.
2: Profile Season 2, The Wrath of the Buzzard, is a Westland Media production created by me, Vince Tornero, and produced by Kevin Skubak. Special thanks to our bonus episode studio engineer at Evergreen Podcast, Dave Douglas. Thanks, man. Listen to all six regular episodes wherever you get podcasts, and be sure to leave us a five-star rating when you do. Thanks to everyone who made this series possible. And thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you on the next bonus episode of The Wrath of the Buzzer.
5: The Korean War has sadly been known as the Forgotten War. But half a century earlier, the United States was locked in a bloody conflict in Asia that's been all but erased from the history books. Hi, I'm Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast on the Evergreen Podcast Network. In our newest episode, we speak to experts about the Philippine American War, America's first Asian counterinsurgency conflict. The heroes, the villains, discuss president mckinley admiral dewey the vicious brutality of the fighting and the scandals and war crimes that nearly sunk theodore roosevelt's presidency check out our show ohio versus the world on the evergreen podcast network for our new episode about america's most forgotten
3: war now back to the show